0: And she said, Pastor, thank you very much, but I, don't, I can't go to Starbucks. And I said, you just don't like it? I mean, it's kind of bitter. I mean, that's what people say, but uh, no, no. Do you know what they stand for? Oh, well, not really. I mean, I've heard some things, but tell me. So she kind of laid out her list of all the um, positions that Starbucks takes as a company. And she said, you know what? If you gave me that card, it would be like me adopting their view. I can't do it. So she graciously, very kindly handed back the card and asked for money. No. (laughs) She just returned it. Another situation, very different. But a young lady came up to her uh, pastor and said, uh, we're leaving the church. How come? He said well, your children's pastor is a Satan worshiper. Our children's pastor is a Satan worshiper? Yeah. I need more. So she told her pastor, well, your children's pastor dressed her kids up and took them out for Halloween. said, so they dress up like demons? What was it? She participated in Satan's holiday, and if you're going to participate in Satan's holiday, uh, this is not the church for us. Those two situations, though in many ways very different, are very identical to the situation that we find here in the text. And they bring into question this kind of basic but very critical question is: can unrighteousness be imputed to meat, to coffee? Candy. Is there the capacity Paul's wrestling with is uh, unrighteousness, evil, wickedness, idolatry, pagan worship, that's worship that is not of God. Can it be imputed to the cow so that when you go to the temple and shop, when you go to Starbucks and drink, when you pass out candy to kids at your house, Are you in that moment supporting, endorsing, aligning with the history of All Hallows' Eve? It's an important question we have to wrestle with. Because it's going to question whether or not we celebrate Christmas because that used to be a pagan holiday. It's going to question whether or not we celebrate Easter because that used to be a pagan holiday. And you can go on forever. We've got a lot of issues that we need to deal with. And what was happening in their church can happen in ours and can happen in many churches. And that is, what well, they were just splitting and getting frayed at the edges because people were coming down in different places. And it's not an insignificant issue. There are some that had the freedom to go to the temple. And by me, there were others that when they did so, it made them feel like, I am in sin. I can't go there. And Paul addressed this church, and he addresses us. How do you handle those controversial issues that the people are going to land in different places in the church? Because they're critical. They can split people up. They can send them away, and they can be mad, and some feel righteous, and others feel judged. And Paul begins this very thorny and difficult issue with this statement. My dear friends, knowledge is important. In fact, it's a beautiful thing. And we lead with knowledge. Why? Because it's the truth. It's logical and it sets the framework for what we're talking about. That's what Paul did. He led with knowledge He he did make this statement. He goes, yes, knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. But then he comes to verse four and he gets immediately before he begins to kind of soften the edges and say, hey, there's a lot of things we need to talk about. He starts with the truth. Why? Because that's important. We should be willing to do that as a church. No matter what the subject is, we should be willing to have a healthy, respectful debate about what is true So he begins in chapter uh, 8, verse 4. He says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, why were they eating food sacrificed to idols? Well, much like us, most of you don't grow your own beef. Some of you do. But the vast majority of people in our day, just like their day, didn't grow their own beef, didn't have their own sheep. They went down to one of two places. They went to the meat market. It would be kind of like for us, not Costco or someplace like that, but a, a place that that's, it's a meat market. That's what they do. They specialize in meat. If you go there, you're going to get some really, really good stuff. And you're probably going to pay uh, more than if you go to Costco, Winco, you know, whatever the case may be. They could go there, wealthy people went there, people with deep certain convictions. The, the more likely place that they went was the temple. Now for us, we we're like, what, you go to church to buy your meat? I mean, it's like, we don't have a butcher shop, you know, in the back here. Uh, so none of us have grown up with that. But for them, that's where they went. They would even in some places, as you can tell by this text, have places where you can go down there and eat. Kind of like that's their cafe, Why? Well, it's because, very simply, that's where you took your animals to sacrifice. That's where you went to worship. When you come to worship, you bring your Bible, you know, you may bring your iPad, you may bring your phone. They took a sheep, they took a cow, they took a pigeon. And, and when they went to worship, that's what they were doing. They, they weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping other different gods. But they went there and that's what they did. There was two reasons why you would go to the temple. Number one, it's cheaper. Much cheaper. It's like going to a butcher shop here today or going to Costco. It's going to be way cheaper. You may not find the best meat there, but you know what? It's going to be Affordable. Number two, I think, was another big reason why a lot of them went there is because if you had a heart for evangelism and if you wanted to enter into the world much like a Matthew's house or, you know, Luke's house or something like that, maybe when Jesus went to Matthew's house, I guarantee if meat was served in that house, it wasn't bought at the butcher market, it was bought at the temple. And so if you wanted to enter into non-Christians' homes, you had to be willing to eat the meat that was purchased down at the local temple. What does Paul say about that? He says, we know that an idol is nothing at all. That idol is simply a fabrication of somebody else's dream about a God. It is a statue. It is a piece of wood. It is nothing. It has no power. It has no significance at all. Plain, simple. That's the truth, Paul says. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, Look around, you go to Corinth, you go to, you know, a variety of these cities. They got gods everywhere. Yet, for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. What's his conclusion? Idol means nothing. It's a piece of wood. Therefore... That idol has no power. Second principle, and this is the critical one. That worship may have been idolatry. And it may have come out of a pagan heart. A heart that's not surrendered to the Lord. But unrighteousness cannot be imputed to a cow. Translate in our day. A non-Christian barista, a non-Christian organization does not have the power to impute evil and unrighteousness to its coffee. When you go and you shop at Starbucks, if you like the coffee, you're not in sin other than the fact you paid way too much money for a black cup of coffee. And for that, I say you're in sin. It's just too much money. But for the fact that you bought something from a non-Christian, that's what it is. Nothing more. The temple was owned by non-Christians. The the butchering was done by non-Christians. The worship was to a pagan god. And Paul says, doesn't matter. Does not matter at all. It doesn't mean you're horrible if you eat it. And it doesn't mean you're righteous if you don't. Why? Because unrighteousness cannot be imputed to a cow. And unrighteousness cannot be translated into a cup of coffee. And unrighteousness can't be. Imputed to your candy that you handed out to those kids. It's not possible to take whatever origin, be it your celebration of Christmas, your celebration of Easter, or your celebration of Halloween. And it doesn't matter if you change the name and call it a harvest party. That hasn't made you righteous. That's just your own silliness. It is. And I know some of you are just so offended. I'm out of this church. Sorry. I just want to be faithful to the text because sometimes we make issues out of things and that's what Paul's point is. You start with the truth. However, and this is really critical, knowledge has its limits. It does. You see, knowledge cannot take into consideration two really critical things. Number one, a person's experience and number two, their maturity or their conscience. You can take a little five-year-old girl and tell her, it's okay, honey nothing's gonna get you in the dark. And you turn the light off in the bedroom and she's clinging to her daddy and she said, daddy, don't leave me. You can explain to her, you can tell her the truth, you can have all of the logical arguments, but the reality is at the age of five, she's probably gonna be afraid. You don't scold her and you say, grow up. You should be beyond this. If you do, somebody needs to have a talk with you. You understand that. She's five. Now, if she's doing it at 25, you've got a problem. But at five, you understand that. But another issue that knowledge doesn't take into consideration is a person's experience. Paul says that there were some of these individuals who, uh, for the last 20 years, they've been going down to the temple and worshiping a foreign god. They've been worshiping a fertility god, or they've been worshiping, you know, uh, a grain god, or they've been worshiping all kinds of things, because that's how they made their life work. We need a big harvest this year, so they went down and made a sacrifice to some god that they fabricated that they thought had power over the wheat. And all of a sudden, that person comes to Christ. And for the last 20 years, they've been going to that temple worshiping a foreign God. And all of a sudden, somebody, hey, let's go back and buy some. Ah, man, I, I'm done with the temple. I had 20 years of lies. I don't want to go back there. Paul says that their conscience is weak, they're not sinful. They just haven't come to the place in maturity there, if you will, maybe a five-year-old that are growing. But the reality is sometimes they may never come out of that. Some of you, you, uh, came out of alcoholism. We cheer you. Thrilled. And the idea of going back to a place that uh, you used to get drunk a lot—I don't care how good the food is—you kind of think, you know what? I'm done with that. I've driven a hard line. I, I'm not even going to go into that kind of an environment. The Bible would say that your conscience in that sense is weak. Now, I don't th- don't think in terms of wow, I, I'm like insecure. No, you've dr- driven a line. You said, you know what? I'm not going to go there. Others of you who have never had a problem with alcohol, maybe you don't even drink at all going to a place that serves alcohol for a great food, you're like, no big deal. I've never had a problem. You are two very different people with different experiences. And Paul says, that's going to happen in the church all the time. Some people grew up when Halloween meant nothing. It just meant, we got tons of sugar. Others are really put off by the association of some evil things. Some of you, you have no problem with Christmas. Others of you are overcoming an infatuation with greed. And you're being delivered by expressing your love through gifts and purchases and mortgaging the future just so that you can put something under the tree. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, It's not that I'm not going to celebrate Christmas, but I'm not doing it like I used to. You see, you have different experiences, different journeys. And that's why Paul says, knowledge is a beautiful thing. It's where we need to begin our discussion. But you need to make sure that you understand it has its limits. Whether we're talking about coffee, candy, meat, or you name it. What do we do in that kind of situation? Well, Paul says, there's a principle that I want to lay down in the church, and it's this. Love is better than knowledge. It doesn't replace knowledge. We still need to have that discussion as what's true, what's logical, what's right. But we're more likely than not going to get to a situation where we have Differences where we have different backgrounds, different experiences, and those experiences shape us. Some of you are a week old in the Lord, and some of you are 50 years old in the Lord. You're in a different place, and you got a single issue, and the reality is you're not going to approach it the same. Paul says in chapter uh, verse 1, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge doesn't have to puff up. I've seen many people who are extremely bright and aren't arrogant. But he does say that knowledge has the capacity if not shaped and cautioned. So he says in verse 9, after he's given the truth, said idols mean nothing, my friends. You buy your meat at the local temple, and you are fine. If it bothers you, don't go. If you're free to go, not a problem. You don't sin. Why? Because the idol has no power. The pagan ownership of of Starbucks has no power. It's coffee. The candy has no power. It's candy. Want to pass it out to your neighbors? Have fun. Give them cavities to the glory of God. But then he says in verse 9, I want you to be careful though. Now he's to the other side. He's not talking about truth. He's talking about love. I want you to be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. It's not just about laying down the truth. It's not just about taking a position. It's not just about this is the truth. You can live with it. That's if you want to be mean. But Paul's going to give us three reasons why you start with truth, but you create a culture of love. Because when we deal with the issues of truth, our backgrounds and experiences are going to cause us to look at these issues and relate to these issues very differently. And love is what keeps us together. What reasons? Number one, love is better, he says, because it builds up. Number one, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge can inform, but love will transform. Love builds up. Why? Because it understands the fundamental nature of transformation is trust. You listen to a person you trust. I don't care if the person is right, if you don't trust them, if they're mean, if they don't have your best interest. No matter how right and logical and good they are, the likelihood that you listen to them and let them shape you is minimal to none. Me too. If a person only has an interest in being right, if a person only has an interest in laying down the law, I'm usually not all that interested. And it's not that I'm not interested in truth at all. Of course I am. But when a person only cares about truth and they don't care about you. They only care about data. They only care about the information that they're going to dispense. You wonder in their heart, do you care about anyone? Or do you only care about being right? Paul said that doesn't hold the church together. It doesn't. And that should be your number one concern. Love is better because it builds up. Why? Because it understands that the very nature of transformation comes in the context of trust. And if I don't trust a person, I'm not going to let them shape me. And if I don't trust a person, I'm not going to let them guide me. The reality is a little girl at the age of five, she can hear all of the data that her dad gives her about safety. But the only way she's really gonna be transformed is if she trusts that man. And she lets him sit there on the side of the bed and she begins to relax and she falls asleep. Why? Because she trusts him. That's what love does. It takes the hand of a person and leads them. Because Paul's point is this. I don't wanna leave immature, weak conscience individuals where they're at. I want them to grow. I want them to mature. And the only way they're going to mature is if somebody who loves them comes alongside of them and says, I'm not going to expect you to be at a different place than you're at today. I will expect that you and I together are going to grow. Truth informs, love transforms. That's why it's better. Secondly, love is better because it helps others see God. God is relational. That's what he says in this text. But the man who loves God, verse three, the man who loves God is known by God. When you enter into that relationship with God, you can there's two kinds of people there's people who can tell me all the facts about God and and they're unmoved by them, and then there's the person that knows God and God knows them. And now we have a relationship. When John was writing to the church there in Ephesus and he he writes to them, it's given to us in 1 John chapter 4, it says, no one has ever seen God and you never will see God. He's a spirit. You don't see spirit, like you don't see the wind. You see the effects of the wind, you just don't see it. And so no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, John says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us and people see the manifestation of God. Now we're talking about something really powerful. Because when we learn to love each other, even though we may look at things differently... When we learn to bear with one another, when we learn to walk at the speed of church, which is often going to be slower than you normally like to walk, then the world takes notice of that. No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. When Jesus was praying to the Father just before he went to heaven, he was with his disciples, and this prayer is recorded in John 17. He said, Father, I pray that this church would look just like you and me. Jesus prayed, I pray that this church would look just like you and me, Father, so that the world would know that I'm real. See, the most powerful evangelistic tool you own as a married couple is your marriage. Because when you get people close to you and they see how you relate to each other and they see how you love each other and how you protect each other and how you defer to each other and how you serve and put the others needs ahead of each other, they they look at that and say, That's not natural. How did you do that? What enables you to do that? Why don't you live self-protectively? Why aren't you insecure? Why don't you check in on your husband all the time? Because, you know, he might be out doing something stupid. Why, do you, why are you different? And Jesus prayed. He said, Father, may their love for each other be just like ours. Because then the world will know that Jesus was real. See, the most powerful evangelistic tool we have, we have to share the gospel. You cannot just live the gospel. It's impossible. You have to proclaim the gospel. But the thing that enables people to see comprehensively God at work is what? How we love each other. And that's why Paul said, love is better than knowledge. It doesn't replace it. But it's the only environment in the church that enables us to hold ourselves together when we have differences. And Finally, love is better because it leads us into humility. It is true that knowledge can puff up. You've seen them. You've encountered people that look down their nose at you with their knowledge. You've encountered a person that comes to you and has every data and every defense and they pin you into a corner and say, you know what, you have to see things my way. You've, you've had that kind of conversation. And you're not captured at all by their humility. You're actually probably turned away by their brashness. Love leads us to humility. Humility. Some of you have heard the story, read the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She, she's a remarkable person. I, I think she has given glory to God in ways that, man, most of us will never touch. When she was younger, I don't know what age, but pretty young, she was in a swimming accident. She dived into a lake and she hit a rock, and she was a quadriplegic from that point on. it has been a quadriplegic for over 40 years. So, in recent past, she also experienced breast cancer. And if that wasn't enough, during her chemo treatment and her battling breast cancer, she got pneumonia. It was during that time she was aware of a friend who was going through kind of a difficult time. His name is Francis, And so she wrote Francis a letter when she was battling for her life struggling every day as Johnny does every day to get out of bed she needs help to go to the restroom she needs help to eat she needs help virtually to live she needs help and yet she also got breast cancer and then pneumonia and she wrote to this dear friend and she said Francis I want you to know how much I love you as a brother in the Lord don't give up the fight Never underestimate the power of your life and the difference you're making for Christ. When Francis received that letter, he's very aware of what's going on in her life. He thought to himself, what on earth? How can a woman who is a quadriplegic, battling cancer, battling pneumonia, take the time, A letter for her is no easy thing. To take the time to write that letter and to encourage a brother who's facing a challenge in his life, but probably nothing like hers. What enables a person to do that? Love. That's humility. It's not thinking poorly of yourself. It's simply thinking of others before yourself. It's placing another person's needs, even if they have a conscience that is not as free as yours. Even if maybe they have rules that they live under that you long ago got rid of. It's being willing to restrict your freedom. It's being willing to overcome and not obsess about your challenge. Because you're moved towards another person whom you want to encourage, strengthen, instruct, love. Paul says, way more important than the meat down at the local market, way more important than coffee, infinitely more important than candy, a lot more important than whether or not you're boycotting Netflix, which is what we're supposed to do now, a lot more important than boycotting Disney, which is on the list as well, way more important than any of those is how you treat the people in this place, in your family. In your sphere of influence. Why? Because love is better. It's superior. It doesn't replace knowledge. It doesn't mean the discussion about the meat is unimportant. Paul had that. But the fact is, I can lay out the truth. And we may still be in different places on this various issue. Why? Because we're in a different space of our journey with Christ different timeline, and we have different experiences. I have different experiences than you do. If I have a movie that there's unfaithfulness in it, I don't care if it's rated G, I'm out. There's things that have happened, not for Carrie and I at all, but in my family system and in my life where unfaithfulness triggers stuff in me, I hate the movie. I don't care if it's G. You may not have that experience, and so my conscience is weak in that area. I don't want to watch it. I've never had an issue with alcohol. I'd rather eat my calories. You can take me to some place where now they serve beer. Who cares? The question is, what kind of food do they serve? Doesn't bother me, but I'm never going to take a good friend. Who has struggled with alcohol and say, Oh, the food is good. You're cruel. It's important to have the conversation about truth, but what's more important is to understand that love is better than knowledge. Why? Because love makes us like Christ. That's at the end of the day, Paul says, You know what? It really doesn't come down to beef, it comes down to when you leave a person, do they say, boy, that must be what it was like to spend a day with Jesus. This past week, a good friend of Carrie and I's passed away. She was on her staff in Fort Collins. Unbelievably talented woman. The thing that made her so compelling is that she spent, spent her life trying to help other people succeed. That was her sole goal. The things that she did on her staff, she was never about her agenda. She was always about yours, always about helping you succeed. A few years ago, last time I saw her, I was in Colorado up at Estes Park speaking at a conference. And she was there, and I didn't know she was going to be there. Uh, She was there with her husband, and she came up. And I I realized at the time that she had just lost her parents, and she was beginning the battle of cancer. But you'd never know it. In the hour that we spent together, she was nothing but interested in our life and Carrie and Annie and, and, the, and the boys. And she spent not the time asking me to pray. She, I literally had to just chisel that out of her. And when you left her, when I left her that last time, the last time I ever saw her, I thought to myself, you know, God, I have never seen a woman so other-centered than her. It must be what it's like to spend a day with Jesus. That's Paul's question. When people leave a conversation with you, do they say, wow, he's right? Or do they say, wow, that must be what it's like to spend the day with Jesus. I've never felt so loved, affirmed, challenged, accepted, fought for, than when I'm with him. That's why love is superior to knowledge. It's not that knowledge is unimportant. We have to have those discussions. We have to talk about the origins of Halloween or Christmas or Easter. (coughs) Excuse me. We have to talk about what does it mean to live in a, a, a culture, in a world where um, I, I, wicked, evil organizations sell things? Can I go there? If I shop at Hobby Lobby, am I a participant in the communist plot to take over the world? Everything in there says made in China. <laughs> I don't go to Hobby Lobby. My wife won't take me. We had an incident in Hobby Lobby. (laughs) She'll tell you about it. She was not happy with me. At the end of the day, and I mean this now sincerely, when she walks away from my time with her, does she say, that's what it was like to spend a day with Jesus? My friends, that's your goal and that's how we can take very difficult situations and have the discussion of truth but create a culture of love that says if you're weak i'll help build your conscience if you're underdeveloped and immature i'm not going to run away from you and i'm not going to hammer you with you know truth bombs and make you feel shamed i'm going to love you so deeply that'll give you the culture and the environment to be transformed. That's why love is superior to knowledge. It doesn't replace it. It just gives you the environment where you can receive it.